What's going on, Restoration family? This is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here, and uh, so glad you're able to join us. This week, we are diving into week six of a six-week series on prayer and lament, and uh, today we're going to talk about corporate lament. What does it look like for us not to just mourn and grieve alone, but what does it look like for us to learn how to do that with others? So with that, here's Landon Myers. My name is Landon, and I am also a have the pleasure of being one of the folks on the team. And what I said, Jeremy, was he brings me great joy. I kid you not. Those were the words that came out of my mouth. Kelly can verify. We are uh, in the sixth and final week of what we call a practice uh, here as Restoration Church. And, and for us, we recognize that Jesus teaches us all kinds of really good stuff and information, but we're not called to stop uh, there with just knowing things. We're called to put into practice the, the way of life of Jesus. And so we've been doing that over the past six weeks uh, through a practice, and this time it's been a practice of prayer and lament. And so today we'll wrap up our, uh, our series and our practice. Groups will still meet, though, uh, throughout this week. And over the past two weeks specifically, as we've looked at prayer and lament, we've talked about lamenting things that are, are painful and broken in our own stories, in your own world, individually and personally. And that matters and is significant. But today, we're going to shift the focus from ourselves to lamenting with others, lamenting maybe with a family member or friends or, or neighbor, or, or something of that sort, another individual or, or smaller group of people. And then we'll also talk about lamenting on behalf of the world, recognizing that our world is filled with brokenness and, and pain, as well as beauty, and that God gives us a language called lament. It's a prayer that moves us through trust and allows us to be honest with the difficulties that happen in our lives. Last week, I shared as we were putting together our practice booklets how Jeremy and I were working on the images, and you'd think that those images are easy to like come up with, but we had to work really hard. I typed in crying people, sad people, depressed people, people with tears on their face, and what came up 75% of the time was literally people laughing. And that was interesting, uh, I shared last week, because I think it's actually a reflection of how our culture processes or does not process hardship and brokenness and pain. We want to move through it as quickly as possible, maybe even pretend that it does not exist. And the reason I bring that up again is because there's another reality we have to wrestle with. Our generation, and by that I mean anyone that's alive today, is going to be exposed to more pain and suffering and hardship and brokenness than any generation ever before, exponentially so because of technology. Uh, I'm not saying that we will endure more ourselves or that life is way harder today than it was 100 or 1,000 years ago, but because of our cell phones and news and the way it is sent out through so many channels, we will be exposed to and have to process more suffering and pain and realities than ever before. And the science of this is showing that humanity has no idea how to process pain and brokenness. The fact that we type in sadness and it comes up with laughter kind of paints the picture of how clueless we are in that vein. I think there's probably a lot of reasons that we don't know how to lament with other people. Perhaps we just recognize 
It's just going to be awkward. It is going to be awkward. It's going to be something that maybe takes away a little bit of my happiness. Yep, it will. And it's not all about us, so we still are called to step into it. Maybe, though, the, the two main reasons that we don't step into lamenting with others are that we don't want to say the wrong thing and unintentionally cause more pain, or we just don't know what to say at all. I certainly uh, fall into that category. Uh, in his book, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, I referenced this last week. And by the way, it's for sale uh, just at our cost uh, by the donuts. This is an incredible resource if you want to continue this, this practice of laments. But Mark, the author, is talking about a, a time, a season in their life when they lost a child and how awkward it was the way in which people dealt with he and his wife and his family. I want to read this briefly. It says this. However, in that journey, we also learned that many Christians like us were unfamiliar, even uncomfortable with lament. When occasionally I candidly shared a few of the struggles of my soul, some people reacted with visible discomforts. Others quickly moved to a desperate desire to find the bright side, a quick, exchange of the, a quick change of the subject, an awkward silence, or even physically excusing themselves to escape the tension. When people stayed in the conversation, they often responded in unhelpful ways. In moments of attempted comfort, people said things like, I'm sure the Lord will give you another baby. Maybe more people will come to faith because of the death of your daughter. Or the Lord must know he can trust you with this. Every person meant well. I appreciated their attempts to address our pain, but it became clear that most people did not know how to join us in our grief. Lament was just not familiar terrain. I recognize that reality in my own life, and I am not naturally gifted at comforting people in hardship. That's not something I'm good at. And so I've kind of taken the approach of, I'm just going to ignore things and let them work out because I don't want to say the wrong thing. And unfortunately, experiences in my life have shown me that that also is not the best or right approach. This week, as I was thinking about lamenting with others, I had this memory sparked of, of high school. And uh, one of my friends, I think our sophomore year of high school, lost her mom. And I knew we were close enough that I should be there for her, but I had no idea how to handle it or what to say. And so a few weeks actually went by, and, and finally uh, we, we saw each other, and I walked up slowly to my friend, and I did not know what to say. And so I kind of just fumbled out this awkward Hey, and then I gave her a hug, and it was kind of a long hug, both because it was an emotional moment, but also I didn't know what to do after that, and so I kind of released from the hug, not knowing what to do, and then we made that kind of deeper eye contact where you're communicating, and I still didn't know what to say, and then she said something, and these words still kind of haunt me. She looked at me directly in the eye and waited a second, and she said, I've been wondering where you were. And that just hit me. There's a, a reality, I think, in our lament that sometimes in our attempts to avoid saying the wrong thing because we don't know what to say, the unspoken words, the silence actually speaks. Something we didn't intend. Somehow, even though maybe it doesn't make sense or it's not fair, it says, 
I don't understand. I'm not with you. I don't care. Obviously, that's not what I intended, but there's this reality in the absence of words in a moment of real hardship and brokenness that our unspoken words communicate something. The need for this practice of lament is pretty wide. As we've been going through this series, I've seen a lot of tears shed in this room individually because of stories. But as we look broader, nationally and globally, we've prayed last week for for what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Part of what sparked the need for this, though, is looking at things going on in our own country, looking at racial tensions, recognizing that racism is real. And so many of us had absolutely no idea, or maybe have no idea how to process that. What ends up happening is there's this reality that people are treated very much unlike how God has designed for people to be treated. And what we do often is out of fear of unintentionally communicating or or being aligned with, identified with a certain party or people group. We don't do anything. And the reality of that is I think we need to be brave enough, even if people assume something wrong about us, to step in and lament with others. doesn't mean I agree with everything. doesn't mean I understand everything. But I recognize there's a formula when it comes to lament. It's that reality is not the way Jesus intended for life to be. And when we see that, we're called to step into it with others. Not to have the right things to say. Not to have a quick fix. But to acknowledge, to be present, to be there. And one of the things we're going to talk about this morning is that it is not my job as a pastor to lament. It is not the job of our staff or our elders or those spiritual people to lament. It is our job as a church, a people following Jesus together to lament. It's not an optional thing. It's instruction we are given in the scriptures and that Jesus models for us. Now, you might be like me and go, I don't know how to do that. Me neither. I'm still really bad at it. But what we'll talk about today is kind of a a simple approach to lamenting with others. And the way we'll, we'll we'll start talking about that is by looking in the book of Esther at a few different biblical examples. So if you have a Bible with you or you want to look in your phone, turn to Esther chapter 3, and we will begin in verse 14. Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The context here, because we can't read uh, all of the book of Esther, is that God's people, this this Jewish community in exile in Persia, have just received some terrible news that a law was decreed, and this communication was disseminated all over the country, that there was a specific date on which everybody was commanded to kill and destroy and steal everything from the Jewish people. There was going to be mass genocide, and the date was marked, and the news was sent out. And so, rightfully so, there's a lot of fear and questioning going on. We pick up in verse 14. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to the people so they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to think, while the, or to drink, not think, while the city of Susa was in confusion. 
When Mordecai, a a Jewish man and the cousin of the, the Jewish queen at this point, learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edicts came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. There's a few things we need to see uh, within these verses. Number one is this first step. Oftentimes when people face brokenness and pain, we want to fix it very quickly. We want to just get rid of it. We don't know what to do. And there's a reality that sometimes there's tangible steps we can take to handle and deal with our own brokenness and pain, or maybe help somebody else's brokenness and pain, but that usually is not the best first step. The first step is lament, and that's what Mordecai and all of the Jewish people in this moment do. Later, they'd find out there were some practical and tangible steps they could take to work on the situation, but the first step was to pray through lament together. Look at verse 4. Esther, the queen, Mordecai's cousins, her cousin, her female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so he could take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Out of her own discomfort about the pain and brokenness going on, she tried to fix it very quickly. She said, take off your lamenting clothes and your mourning clothes and take off your lamenting face and your mourning face and look better, cheer up, here's some clothes, let's move on. And then there's this verse that's really key. He did not accept them. Why? Because that's not what he needed. In our American culture, one of the things we're really good at, and it's a good thing, is that we're great problem solvers. We pull out the the whiteboard or whatever it is, and we go, what's the problem? What's the solution? And we make it happen. Check it off the list. But when it comes to people's pain and brokenness, the realities of hardship, of which there's plenty in this room, and in our neighborhoods, places of work, etc., the first step shouldn't be a quick fix. Esther tried that. That wasn't the right solution. First step is lament. We see Mordecai and the rest of this nation do that together. Notice this also. It's kind of just fascinating. Mordecai only went as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. Why did he do that? Because he didn't want his good mood and his parties and pleasure to be disrupted by pain in other people's lives. I want to be very clear here. Jesus calls us to step into that awkwardness. Jesus calls us to make mistakes and enter the discomfort of a situation, to let go of our happy moments to step into the uncomfort of other people's worlds and to lament with them. We're going to fast forward now to chapter 9, because again, we don't have time to go over all of Esther. A whole lot of good things happen. God's people lament. God hears their cries. Notice that. God hears their cries. Hear it one more time. God hears our cries. We have a God that hears and listens and knows. And he works and he moves. And a new law is decreed that the Jewish people can defend themselves. And everything is sort of reversed and we read about it in chapter 9, verse 1. The king's command, this new command, and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. 
On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Terror of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps and the governors and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they were afraid of Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. As it turned out, there were very tangible steps Esther and Mordecai and other people within this community could take. But that wasn't the first step. The first step was appealing to God, bringing their complaints to him, asking boldly, and then choosing to trust. And in that, in his own way, he provided. Our next biblical example will be the example of Jesus. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 11, kind of two-thirds of the way through the scriptures. We saw a whole nation practice lamenting together. Now we'll see how Jesus practiced lament in his own community and in his own life. We'll we'll start in verse 17. Uh, The context here is that Jesus' personal friend named Lazarus has died. And so he's going to visit his family. We read in verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother who had died. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, and hear this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I love processing these kind of sentences in the scripture and not just taking them at the first glance, my first read. I wonder what kind of tone she used when she said this to Jesus. Because it it really changes a lot. On on one hand, she could have came to Jesus and with this almost pleading, wishing, hoping that he could reverse time. There's almost this request like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Or maybe she was just angry. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. And then guess what? Look at how he responds. He doesn't freak out on her. He doesn't go, who do you think you are? I'm the God of the universe. How dare you complain to me in this way? She's actually kind of accusing him a little bit. She's assigning a little bit of the blame to Jesus. And he doesn't lose it. He's not worried about it. I think oftentimes we don't give Jesus enough credit. He can handle our complaints and our emotions and our fears and are not knowing where to place the blame, even if we place it on him. When he, uh, as we talked about last week, invites us to bring our complaints, Jesus means that. He welcomes it. He invites it. He can handle the things going on in our lives. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Verse 24, Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. 
As soon as she heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. So they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, no, you can interpret the tone for yourself. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Exclamation point. The exclamation point means there was emotion she was processing, and she was not only permitted and allowed, she was invited to share that and process it and figure it out with Jesus. Not before she came to Jesus, but with Jesus. When Jesus saw her crying, there's beauty in this next sentence. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. One of the misconceptions we make about God is that he doesn't get angry. Actually, in very healthy ways, from time to time, when it is needed, God does get angry. Anger is not an unhealthy, ungodly emotion. In the right situations... Anger is actually a godly emotion and response. But we have to clarify what God, what Jesus is angry at here in this moment. He's not angry with Mary and Martha. He's angry with Satan and sin and disease and sickness and death and all of the things that had become a reality in this world and that are still a reality in our world that were not his intent for our lives. Jesus is angry and deeply moved because he made a beautiful, perfect, good world that Satan and sin have since distorted. And so he's angry, visibly, emotionally. Jesus continues, where have you put him? Lord, they told him, come and see. Verse 35, two pretty powerful words. Jesus wept. The almighty, all-knowing, powerful, perfect God of the universe wept. He was angry at hard things that had happened, and then he wept. He invites us to do the same thing. Notice this too. Jesus could and would do something. He would bring Lazarus back to life, but he didn't go for the quick fix. The first step was lament. Another kind of interesting point here is the, the Greek words used to describe Jesus weeping versus Mary and Martha's weeping are two different words. For Mary and Martha, it's the ugly cry, wailing, loud type of weeping. It's a different word for Jesus. It says he shed some tears kind of weeping. And I kind of like that. You don't have to be someone that can just dive into a conversation, look someone in the eye, and just wail with them because it's just natural. Like Some people can do that. And others of us, it doesn't work as well. All we have to do is just show up and be present. Continue on to Romans chapter 12. We've seen a whole nation practice lamenting with others together. And we see Jesus practice it with friends on behalf of others and himself. And now Paul, the apostle, writes a letter that we refer to as Romans to a church a people who are united in their following of Jesus in Rome, like we are a people who are united in our following of Jesus here in Prescott. And he wrote 
to guide them in the way of Jesus and what it looks like to follow him and the everyday stuff of life. And part of what he discusses is lament. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter because it's beautiful instruction, but we'll key in on a couple things. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Part of the way of life in this age is that we just move on. We offer a quick fix. We don't know how to handle brokenness and pain. Part of the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is to be honest about the fact that it's real and to be honest about the fact that there's only one name who can do anything about it long-term, and his name is Jesus. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service and service, if teaching and teaching, if exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Here's verse 15. It's important. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's a command. That's the instruction of how to live out the way of Jesus, is to know who's rejoicing and rejoice with them. That's not too hard to do. Know who's weeping and weep with them. That's a little bit more awkward. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. And verse 21, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. One of the ways that we are not conquered by evil, but we overcome evil with good is actually by stepping into the, the brokenness and pain and hardship that evil causes with lament and praying with others about those realities and trusting that Jesus in his timing and in his way will restore. Do not be conquered by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lament is one of the pathways for that to become a reality. 
I'll say it again. Lament is not my job as a pastor. Lament is our job as a church, as people following Jesus together. And you still might be thinking, "Uh, I'm still not sure how to do this. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm not sure what to say. That is really fair. And so we've been talking about four steps uh, to approach and embrace lament together. That applies to yourself individually. The same four steps, though, uh, apply to lamenting with others. And so here's kind of a template, uh, if you're like me and need some help, uh, that I think can be helpful. Four steps of lament uh, for us to build. Can we actually go to that last set of slides? Not the, the corporate prayer, Nicola, but there we go. Perfect. So number one, the first step is to address God and to do so honestly. And so you can kind of do this in your own way, in your own words, based on the situation, but it's a simple uh, first step in this prayer. Jesus, we come to you today, and then you just insert the feeling based on the situation. Feeling confused or broken, questioning, angry, anxious, Whatever you sense the person who's experiencing this is feeling, we pray that. We come to Jesus being honest about what we feel. Step number two, bring the complaints. Remember, Jesus can handle our complaints. We continue to pray. The reality of whatever it is that's going on, it could be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, uh, experiencing uh, physical or some other type of suffering. And then we just uh, continue to say it's overwhelming and painful. So we're giving that to Jesus. Step three, ask boldly. Jesus, in the midst of this moment, we ask for your mercy, presence, and healing. And then you can add whatever specifics are appropriate based on that situation. It doesn't have to be long, drawn out. So far, three simple sentences. Fourth, and and finally, we choose to trust. Jesus, though this moment is painful, we look to you and want to trust you. I think that word want is important, though, because we might not trust him in that moment. There's a difference between trusting and wanting to trust. And again, Jesus can handle our honesty. It's okay to go, Jesus, I don't trust you right now, but I want to. So my form of trust right now is just to be honest with you about it. We want to trust you. Help us to trust you through this moment. It's one thing, and and we talk about this often, it's one thing to just talk about the way of Jesus or even to get into small groups and sit in circles and and discuss what it would be like to put into practice the way of Jesus. It's totally different to actually do it. And and so we kind of have this habit of creating awkward situations together for us on Sundays to actually practice the way of Jesus. And so we're going to do that now. Uh, In just a moment, I'm going to kind of give some time for you to circle up maybe with a few people around you. Maybe you know someone in this room's story or, or hardship or brokenness or things going on, and you can walk across the room and lament with them. We'll keep up these slides so you know it's just four simple lines and steps. But we're not called to be a group of individuals or even individual families or a few people that come together on Sunday mornings to sit in rows and learn stuff. We're called to be a community of people, a family following Jesus together. So we're going to practice that. And maybe you go, I can't do that this morning. That's fine. You don't have to step out into it. You can stay where you're seated and just pray on your own. But no, at some point, lamenting with others is not optional for those who claim to be following Jesus. He calls us to step into. He instructs us to willingly enter into the uncomfortable to walk alongside others. You're both broken and beautiful. 
Uh, Before we do that, I'm going to invite you to uh, come forward. After we have a few minutes together, we're going to read a prayer together, a corporate lament. Uh, But before we do that, come up now. We're going to grab the elements for communion on either side of me if you're new with us. Go ahead and and take uh, the elements back. And then as you do, take some time to lament with others, to pray by yourself. Don't take the elements yet. We're going to take it together here in just a few moments. Feel free to continue praying together in your groups as you do so, or if you were with uh, a couple people praying. I want to read a text that I uh, received like 30 minutes ago uh, from somebody in our church that's, that's not here today. Here's what she said. She said, hey, Landon, long story, but I can't share it all. But would our church be willing to lift up tests today for complete healing physically emotionally, deep, deep healing in her soul. God is at work mightily this weekend in her. She got really sick last week, and I thought she might be going to see Jesus soon. But then God revived her, and he is working in her soul like crazy. She's such a wonderful person, and I just wondered if you guys could have the church pray today. I just feel in my spirit like that would be amazing. We're heading to Florence uh, for a wedding but I think it would be powerful if you could pray together. So we're going to take the next couple of moments to pray for Tess Jones, who's been going through a battle with cancer on and off of hospice. Her husband's name is Jeremy, and she's got two young middle school daughters. If you could pray for her in your groups, a prayer of lament as well. 
simple steps just the same, address God, bring our complaints on behalf of Tess and her husband and her daughters, ask boldly for healing and comfort and God's presence in their family, and then a, a choice to trust. If we could all just take a couple moments to pray for Tess and the whole Jones family, I would appreciate it. Take just another moment and then uh, in your own time, bring your attention to the screens. There's power in praying and lamenting in all kinds of different ways on our own and smaller groups in our homes, in our gathering place, which is this building in our heads and out loud. There's also power in proclaiming a prayer of lament together with one voice. And so we're going to take communion here in just a moment. But before we do that, I'm going to ask that you join me uh, to pray this, this prayer of lament. It comes from a book called Every Moment Holy. That's a really powerful book filled with liturgies and, and prayers. And this one is uh, about lament. And so we're going to put this prayer on the screen. And for the parts that are uh, in bold, there's not too many, but the parts that are in bold, I'm going to ask that you proclaim those as one voice with me as a prayer of lament as we look to our Father in the midst of all kinds of things, both beauty but a lot of brokenness and pain in our world as well. Let's pray these words together. There is so much lost in this world, O oh Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken. What is best in this world has been bashed and battered and trodden down. What was meant to be the substance has become the brittle shell, haunted by the ghosts of a glory so long crumbled that only its rubble is remembered now. We weep for the wretched expressions of all things that were first built of goodness and glory but are now their own shadow twins. We have wept so often, and we will weep again. And yet, there is somewhere in our tears a hope still kept. We feel it in this darkness like a tiny flame when we are told, Jesus also wept. You wept. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, 
You, O Lord, heaved with the grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. O Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession, that we, your children, in our groaning with the sadness of creation, could be joining in some burdened work of coming restoration? Is it possible that when we weep, it is because the curse has ranged so far, so wide, that we wept at that that breaks your heart, because it has also broken ours, sometimes so deeply that we cannot explain our weeping even to ourselves. If that is true, then let our tears anoint these broken things and let our grief be as their consecration, a preparation for their promised redemption, our sorrow sealing them for that day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out. O Lord, if it please you, use our tears to baptize what you love. Amen. If you uh, came forward to take the elements for communion, go ahead and grab uh, the wafer symbolizing the body of Jesus. As you hold that, remember that he did indeed sacrifice not only his body, but his blood. There was real sacrifice. There was real laments and groaning and pain and anguish, yet he took that journey. And then the story doesn't end there. He rose. And so with him, these stories of pain and brokenness and tears that are shed in our lives and the lives of others and in our world as a whole, one day will be restored through the work of Jesus. Remember, as we take uh, communion here together, that you never walk alone. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to cry out those words. He is alive and well. And as we take communion together now, know that he is with us. Go ahead and take both the bread and the cup. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love. We thank you for communion and that we are united with you by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are with us and for us and that you lead us through the everyday stuff of life, through the beautiful moments and the broken moments. I also thank you for this body of believers, that we don't shed our tears alone, but that they can be shared. We love you and we look to you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I really believe that this is a journey or a process that we're going to have to learn uh, over a period of time as we um, wrestle through and learn what it means to trust Jesus in these areas and, and then in turn learning how to step out of ourselves and learning how to lament and mourn grieve with those around us. And so we really encourage you take some time to um, process through what this looks like. Um, hopefully you've been able to be a part of a practice group. If not, um, I'm, and you've missed some weeks, jump back, listen uh, again through uh, the six-week series. Um, you can do that at restorationaz.org. But this journey of, of practicing prayer and lament is so important and vital in our journey as we practice the way of Jesus. And so, as always, 
Thanks for joining us. So glad you are here. And remember, Jesus is the only one who's trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.